1: Lorenzo Gilliard, also known as the Kansas City Strangler, committed horrendous violence against women and girls from 1977 to 1993. He raped and murdered at least 13 women and girls and was finally brought to justice in 2007. He is one of America's most depraved serial killers, and he terrorized Kansas City for over 15 years. I'm your host, Nisa. Welcome to the Lost Crimes Library podcast. This is the story of the disturbing history of serial killer Lorenzo Gilliard. Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard, Jr. was born on May 24, 1950, in Kansas City, Missouri. He is one of five children born to Lorenzo Gilliard, Sr. and his wife, Laura Brown. From an early age, Lorenzo Jr. exhibited disturbing and menacing behavior. He was a very aggressive child. During his time in school, Lorenzo played on sports teams with his brothers, but because he was larger than most of his peers, he physically assaulted the smaller children and became known as a bully. His bad behavior in bullying wasn't just a phase. It only got worse throughout the years. Due to his lack of discipline, poor academic performance, and chronic truancy, Lorenzo was forced to drop out of school after the 10th grade. In the mid-1960s, he met a young woman named Rena Hill, and they soon began a romantic relationship. On November 20th, 1968, Lorenzo Gilliard and Rena Hill married after Rena learned that she was pregnant. Despite this new chapter in his life, a chapter that seemed traditional and possibly an opportunity for Lorenzo to change for the better, Lorenzo instead began to indulge in crime. This is also when he began to go to a darker, more sinister side, exhibiting deviant sexual behavior towards women. The following year, after Lorenzo and Rina married, Lorenzo was arrested. In January 1969, Lorenzo was arrested on charges of the assault and rape of a young girl he knew. However, the charges were soon dropped after an agreement was made between Lorenzo and the young girl after Lorenzo apologized. The victim ended up retracting her statement against Lorenzo. During my research, I learned that in 1970, Lorenzo's father was also arrested and convicted of rape. I found this interesting because clearly Lorenzo was following in his dad's footsteps. Two years later, Lorenzo was arrested again, assaulting and raping another woman. This victim alleged that Lorenzo had choked her until she reached unconsciousness. She ended up identifying Lorenzo as her attacker in a lineup. But despite being able to identify him, Lorenzo was cut loose again from police custody. Apparently, the victim's testimony was considered questionable and the charges were immediately dropped. And this trend of Lorenzo slipping away from the justice system just continues when Lorenzo's wife, Rena, files charges against her own husband for the same crimes he has been committing against other women. In 1973, Lorenzo was arrested for assaulting his wife. Rena Hill told the police that her husband had been physically and sexually abusing her throughout their whole marriage. But the only consequences Lorenzo had to face was paying a fine and being forced to divorce his wife. And sadly, this isn't exactly shocking, given the time when this happened. It was the early 1970s, and domestic violence and marital rape weren't considered serious issues back then. It wasn't until 1978 when the U.S. courts addressed the issue of marital rape. The court case Oregon v. Rideout in 1978 was the first in which someone stood trial for raping his spouse while they lived together but it wasn't until 1993 marital rape was a crime nationwide. Despite this though, in the 1990s, most states still continued to differentiate between the way marital rape and non-marital rape were viewed and treated. In February, 1974, Lorenzo was arrested again. He was taken in by police for raping a 25-year-old exotic dancer who identified him as her attacker from a photograph. But yet again, the charges were dropped. Apparently, the victim was convinced to retract the charges. Five months later, Lorenzo was arrested again for raping the 13-year-old daughter of a friend on the banks of the Missouri River. However, because the victim changed her testimony, the rape charges were dropped, but Lorenzo was actually convicted this time. He was convicted of sexual acts with a minor and he received a nine-month sentence in the Jackson County jail. After his release from jail, Lorenzo embarked on his second marriage, a marriage that didn't last for too long. His wife left him soon after they were married because, just like Rena Hill, she claimed she was beaten and sexually abused by her husband. But this didn't slow Lorenzo down. No, he decided to get married for a third time in the late 1970s. In 1979, Lorenzo found himself in trouble with the law once again, to no one's surprise. He was arrested on charges of assaulting a young couple this time. He was charged for raping the girl and threatening to kill her fiancé. Despite the fact that the victims identified him as their attacker, Lorenzo was acquitted by a jury verdict at his trial in September 1980. It is reported that his acquittal was due to lack of evidence. A few months later, Lorenzo was facing marital and legal trouble again. He was arrested for aggravated assault on his third wife, but once again, he got away scot-free with an administrative fine and a divorce. But that wouldn't be the last time Lorenzo terrorized his wife. Apparently a divorce and fine doesn't stop abusers from abusing. Who would have thought? In February 1981, Gilliard attacked his ex-wife on two separate occasions, and the first one he knocked out her front teeth and in the second he stabbed her in the hand with an ice pick. He was arrested and charged with third-degree assault, but was let go on a suspended sentence and probation. In November 1981, Lorenzo was arrested for theft, but he was released on $3,500 bail. That same spring, he received a four-year prison sentence for violating his probation. During his incarceration, his sister Patricia D. Dixon who was working as a sex worker at the time, was convicted of murdering a client in 1983 and sentenced to 11 years imprisonment, in addition to being implicated in the murder of another sex worker. I found this information interesting because how serial killers come to be is a popular topic in the true crime community. And it's interesting that Lorenzo, his sister, and his father had histories of crime. I think this just adds to the discourse of Are serial killers made, or is it in their nature? Or maybe is it both? There isn't much out there about Lorenzo's upbringing, meaning his relationship with his parents and whatnot. So we can't argue definitively either way if this monster was made or born this way. But it is telling that Lorenzo's family has a history of crime. On January 10, 1983, Lorenzo was paroled for violating his probation back in 1981. But he soon returned to prison after he was arrested in Wyandotte County, Kansas, for making bomb threats. He was released from prison for these bomb threats in late 1985. And in January 1986, Lorenzo got a job as a garbage man at the Deffenbaugh Disposal Service, where his father worked in the maintenance department. The following year, on December 23, 1987, Lorenzo was arrested and interrogated as a potential suspect in the murder of 36-year-old Sheila Ingold. Sheila was found strangled on November 3, 1987. Sheila was a sex worker and she was found inside an abandoned van near an auto shop in Kansas City. During the investigation, it was discovered that her killer had stolen two rings off her corpse. During the interrogation, conducted by detectives for this case, Lorenzo's blood sample was taken. But this didn't mean Lorenzo was charged for the murder, because he was eventually released due to lack of evidence. Little did they know at the time that in the future, that blood sample would eventually link Lorenzo to more than a dozen murders of women in Kansas City. In 1991, Lorenzo tied the knot for the fourth time. He was also promoted to company supervisor at his job at Deffenbaugh Disposal Service during this time. This promotion granted him control of several garbage disposal teams in various parts of Kansas City. While he gained more authority at his job, Lorenzo was seeking control and violence over women during his free time. Despite his history of crimes, Lorenzo's friends and acquaintances spoke of him in a positive manner. To some people, Lorenzo Gilliard was a nice guy, but they didn't see that darker, violent side that he inflicted on many women and girls. In July 1996, Lorenzo's neighbor went to the police, claiming that she had been sexually harassed by him since September 1995. However, no charges were brought against him, and the woman moved away soon after. Aside from this incident, Lorenzo Gilliard isn't known to have committed any crimes after 1993. Meanwhile, while Lorenzo was making his way up the ladder at his job, marrying one woman after the other and constantly checking in and out of prison, there were detectives at the Kansas City Police Department, who were watching the dust gather on piles of unsolved homicide cases. These cases were of female sex workers who were all found in rural areas of Kansas City with paper towels stuffed in their mouth, strangulation marks around their necks and without their shoes. These women were victims of a serial killer that police had yet to catch. But investigators finally received the break that they desperately needed. According to the Los Angeles Times, a multimillion dollar grant from the federal government in 2001 helped the Kansas City Police Department gain access to DNA testing. And this was a major breakthrough. DNA testing was applied to a backlog of cold cases in Kansas City, Missouri. Even though the science behind DNA wasn't as advanced in the 1970s and 80s, investigators still took hair, blood, and samples of other bodily fluids from crime scenes when they could. And as they began to reopen unsolved murder cases one by one, they recognized a pattern in many of them. This pattern was pointing them in one direction. Twelve different murder victims had the DNA of one man on them. And that man was Lorenzo Gilliard. Thanks to that blood sample that Lorenzo provided law enforcement back in 1987, Lorenzo Gillyard was finally brought to justice after he spent several years terrorizing and abusing young women and girls. Confident of the case they had built against Gillyard with the DNA evidence, they got a warrant for his arrest and charged him for murder. After his arrest, Lorenzo Gilliard was charged with the following murders. Seventeen-year-old Stacy L. Swafford was last seen alive on April 10, 1977. Her body was found a week later at a vacant lot, showing signs of suffocation. The investigation of her case determined that she had recently arrived in Kansas City and was a homeless transient making a living off sex work. A few years later, 15-year-old Gwendolyn Cazine was found strangled on January 23, 1980, a day after her father had reported her missing. Investigators learned Gwendolyn's neck and wrists were tightly wrapped with wire. It was later established that the girl was a sex worker and was last seen by her parents the week prior to her murder. Two years later, Margaret J. Miller was found strangled on May 9, 1982. She was just 17 years old when she was murdered. Like the previous victims, Margaret made her living through sex work. Then there was 34-year-old Catherine M. Barry. Her body was discovered in an abandoned building on March 14, 1986, with a stocking wrapped tightly around her neck. Catherine suffered from mental illness and was the only known victim to not be a sex worker. However, she often spent time associating with the marginalized people in society, as she was a runaway who slept in homeless shelters often. That same year, 23 year old Naomi M. Kelly was murdered. This young woman was found strangled to death in a park on August 16, 1986. Naomi was a student at a business school and a single mother raising two children, but the investigators uncovered that she was forced to engage in sex work due to some financial issues. Gilliard had used a towel to strangle her, which he had left near the body. By the end of 1986, Gilliard had found his next victim in 32-year-old Deborah Sue Blevins. Deborah was found strangled to death on November 27, 1986. She was found completely nude in some bushes next to a church. And then there was Ann Barnes the following spring. She was found strangled to death on April 17, 1987. She was 36 years old, an exotic dancer, and a sex worker who worked at a local establishment. In the summer of 1987, 20 year old Kelly A. Ford was discovered strangled on June 9, 1987. She was found almost completely naked, and her killer dumped her body at the edge of a cliff near one of the city's parks. It was later learned that Kelly was a drug addict and known sex worker in the area. On September 12, 1987, 19 year old Angela Mayhew was found strangled to death. Unlike the other victims, Angela was found fully clothed on the side of a road. She was also a sex worker like many of the other victims, but there was no trace of sexual assault found during the autopsy. Before Christmas in 1987, 30-year-old Carmeline Renee Hibbs was found dead. She was discovered strangled to death on December 19, 1987. Her body was found partially nude in the parking lot of an apartment building. 29-year-old Connie Lynn Luther was the last known victim of Lorenzo Gilliard. She was found strangled on January 11, 1993. Connie was a sex worker and she was discovered in a snowdrift, with a noose made of laces tied around her neck. Lorenzo Gilliard was apprehended by authorities on April 18, 2004. Alongside DNA evidence, Investigators were able to tie Lorenzo Gilliard to these murders because of his modus operandi. A modus operandi, or MO, is a particular way or method of doing something. Lorenzo's MO was, one, sexual assault on mostly sex workers and or drug users, and two, all victims were strangled with an improvised ligature found at the scene either during or after assault, and three, he removed and took his victims' shoes. On June 23, 2006, following the results of DNA expertise, Lorenzo Gilliard was charged with an additional murder. This murder was committed in February 1989. 26-year-old Helga Kruger was found strangled like the other victims in Kansas City. Helga was actually an Austrian immigrant who was convicted of extortion, but investigators found no links pointing to Helga having been in the business of sex work unlike the other victims. Lorenzo is also considered a possible suspect in the 1987 murder of a 21-year-old store clerk named Paula Davis, whose body was later found dumped in the nearby state of Ohio. And so, although investigators believed that Gilliard was responsible for the murders of 12 women, they put their best cases forward with the forensic DNA evidence that they had, and only formally charged him with 7 of the 12 murders. They didn't want the risk of reasonable doubt and allowing this killer to get loose once again. Ultimately, Gilliard was convicted for six of the seven murders and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Lorenzo Gilliard was able to avoid the death penalty as a possible sentence when he made an agreement with prosecutors before the trial. The New York Times reported that this deal was for Lorenzo to forgo most of his rights to appeal, should he be convicted and to have his case tried by a judge instead of a jury. He is currently serving out that sentence at the Western Missouri Correctional Center. As of recently, in 2018, Lorenzo Gilliard went public, and still maintains he is innocent. What's so frustrating about today's story is that Lorenzo Gilliard kept escaping the grasp of the justice system for his crimes, that he kept having opportunity after opportunity to rape and kill women and girls. The fact that his domestic violence and marital rape charges weren't taken seriously shows that our system isn't about protecting women and girls, a demographic that is greatly affected by violence from men. Like with the Samuel Little episode, I'm so unsettled by the fact that Gillyard continued to have romantic relationships with women, even though he had a violent history with women and his ex-wives. But apparently even people who knew Gillyard, like friends and acquaintances, never suspected this sinister side to him. It's so spooky how similar Gilliard and Little were. They both targeted sex workers and or women who were usually forgotten by society. They both strangled their victims too, and they also managed to avoid prison time for some of their crimes. And I can't help but assume that these killers were able to get away with so much because of the victims they chose. I think these killers knew what they were doing by targeting sex workers, In fact, Samuel Little admitted to this. It's just incredibly heartbreaking that they were able to get away with it for years and in the process killed more women than they should have ever had the chance to. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Lost Crimes Library podcast. If you enjoy the show, please show your support by leaving a rating and review on Apple and Spotify. Also, follow us on social media. You can find us on Instagram and TikTok at the Lost Crimes Library pod. Before you go, make sure you hit the follow button because new episodes drop every Wednesday and you won't want to miss it.